You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of July 6th, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Golden, where the West rides. Bike cruise participants saddle up for fun summertime rides by Corinne Westerman for the Golden Transcript. $500,000 cash bond set for Marquez in fatal hit-and-run case by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. Jeffco Public Health gives PSA on summer fun around high water by Joe Davis for the Jeffco Transcript. Wheat Ridge City Council, new playgrounds, parking lots, and more by Joe Davis for the Jeffco Transcript. Taste of Arvada Returns by Lillian Fugle by the, for the Arvada Press. And Jeffco School Board approves more Pomona School Consolidation by Jane Reuter, special to Colorado Community Media for the Arvada Press and following up with various articles. Golden, where the West rides. Bike cruise participants saddle up for summertime rides by Corinne Westerman. Golden Knights were back in the saddle again June 27th as they donned their cowboy hats, untied their steeds from their hitching posts, and rode off into the sunset. Hundreds of locals saddled up for the cowboys and cowgirls themed Golden Bike Cruise, a summertime staple that fundraises for local nonprofits. The event, which is the last Tuesday of the month, May through September, starts at the Armory Parking Lot Garage and loops through North Golden before returning downtown. The bike cruise also features music by a local band, Golden-based food and beer vendors, and other local sponsors. Golden Community Commons, a subset of Calvary Church, hosts the event and partners with a different nonprofit each month to share revenues. For June 27th, it was the Rotary Club of Golden. For the cruises, which started about 16 years ago, raises about $3,000 a year for Golden Community Commons and about $600 each for five nonprofits. Organizers explained. The event also has a different theme each month, except for the September ride, which is always a zombie-themed one. Organizers Peter Ewers and Jill Powers said June's Cowboys and Cowgirls theme was coincidental, but saw how it aligned with Golden's history and Old West feel. We are where the West lives, Ewers said, referring to Golden's iconic arch. It's a good way to hearken to the past as we enjoy today and look to the future. Rides can draw anywhere from 150 to 300 participants, depending on the month and the weather. 
The May 30th event started with ominous clouds overhead, which Ewers and Powers said might have warded off some riders, but it ended up being a nice evening. Overall, though, the Golden Bike Cruise is truly a homegrown event, drawing mostly locals for quality community time each summer, Ewers described. Joe and Kristen Lasser, for instance, have been bringing their kids since 10-year-old Ezra was a baby. They've also started a tradition of celebrating Isla's birthday on the June bike cruise and brought a cake and decorations for her fifth birthday to the June 27th event. It also worked out nicely that Joe's band, Derek Hall and the Possibilities, played at the June 27th event. Joe and Kristen said they return every summer because they love biking and the event's sense of community, along with its vendors and music. It's one of our favorite events in Golden, Joe continued. Meanwhile, the Taylor family members rode in their inaugural bike cruise after moving to Golden last month from Northern Virginia. They described how they saw a flyer in downtown shop and decided to try it out. The Taylors, parents Nicholas and Jordana, and children Clara, Devin, and Zoe all enjoy cycling. It was one of the reasons they moved to Golden, Nicholas described. So they plan to participate in the summertime bike cruises as often as possible, with Jordana emphasizing how it's an activity all of them can do together. The next cruise on July 25th will be Tropical Paradise themed. For more information, visit goldenbikecruise.com. $500,000 cash bond set for Marquez in Fatal Hit and Run Case by Corinne Westman. Ruben Marquez, the alleged driver in the fatal hit and run outside a Golden Bar, has his bond set at $500,000 cash only. Marquez, 30, is facing first-degree murder, vehicular homicide, and multiple assault charges for allegedly driving a truck into a crowd of people outside the Rock Rest Lodge on October 9th. Adrian Ponce, 26, was killed in the incident, and at least four others were injured, including Rock Rest employees. Marquez appeared in court June 28th after a, after a recent Colorado Supreme Court ruling found that courts can't deny a defendant's bail request even if Class 1 felony cases. Because Colorado no longer has a death penalty, there are no longer capital offense cases, and defendants can't be held without bond, Judge Lindsay Van Gelden explained on June 28th. Thus, the First Judicial District Attorney's Office and other jurisdictions are expediting bond hearings in all pending murder cases. In general, judges decide the dollar amounts based on the individual cases and each defendant's flight risk, criminal history, risk to the community, etc. According to the DA's office, there is no ceiling on how high bonds can be set with some in the millions of dollars. Under the previous rules, Marquez was being held at the Jefferson County Jail without bond. However, at the June 28th hearing, Van Gelder set Marquez's bond at $500,000 cash with several conditions if he's able to post it. Along with requiring pretrial supervision and GPS tracking, Marquez can't consume drugs or alcohol, can't possess firearms, must surrender any passport, and isn't allowed to return to the Rock Rest. Additionally, Marquez must appear in person for his arraignment at 3.30 p.m. August 7th. 
Ben Gilder commented how, based on discussions at previous hearings, Marquez is expected to plead not guilty and have a two-week trial in January. Meanwhile, co-defendant Ernesto Avila is scheduled for a nine-day trial in late August. Avila, 26, pleaded not guilty to a felony accessory charge in February, and he's scheduled for trial from August 22nd to September 1st. He owns the truck involved in the hit-and-run, but Jeffco Sheriff's Office investigators believe he was a passenger when the truck hit the crowd. Marquez's attorneys have disputed those claims, promoting the theory that Avila was the driver. My life is shattered. Prosecutors argued for $1 million cash-only bond, noting Marquez's criminal history, including one case where his probation was revoked. Van Gilder also remarked how Marquez was on parole during the October 9th incident and shouldn't have been consuming alcohol. Ponce's family members asked Van Gilder to set the highest bond possible, saying they're completely heartbroken by Ponce's death. His two children are now growing up without a father, and his family believed it wasn't fair that Marquez be allowed to return to a relatively normal life when their lives have been ruined. After hearing how Marquez hoped to make Bond and see his daughter, Ponce's mother described how she now has to visit her son in the cemetery. He has destroyed my whole world, Ponce's mother said of Marquez. My heart is broken. My life is shattered. I just want the highest bond possible, so hopefully he can't even make it. However, Marquez's defense attorneys reiterated how even though the case is moving forward, he hasn't been found guilty or pleaded guilty to any charges. Thus, they requested a $100,000 cash or surety bond. There's a significant possibility that Mr. Marquez isn't guilty of anything, one of his attorneys said. If he's not the driver, he's not guilty of any of the present charges. Marquez has family locally who can vouch for him, including giving him a stable job and a place to live, the defense described. He's also trying to get visitation rights to see his daughter who lives nearby, saying he's motivated to be in her life. He's a very principled, calm man who doesn't intend to harm anyone, his attorney continued. He'd never take the opportunity to run and have his family be bankrupted by that decision to pay his bond. Van Gelder shared with everyone in the courtroom how she had, quote, the difficult task of determining bond in a class one felony case, which was now, which was new for her. But weighing all the arguments both sides had presented along with the Ponce family's comments, she determined $500,000 cash was sufficient. Jeffco Public Health gives PSA on summer fun around high water. By Joe Davis. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration predicted a wetter than normal June. In fact, the agency predicted that Colorado wouldn't experience its usual summer drought. After enduring a month of hailstorms and monsoon-like rains, the Jefferson County community now must navigate summer activities in high water levels. The usual tubing, swimming, boating, and other water activities are not prohibited. However, the Jefferson County Public Health Department wants you to remember a few rules to stay safe when engaging in higher water levels. Here are some reminders. Resources. And warnings from Christine Billings, 
Director of Epidemiology, Planning, and Communications at Jefferson County Public Health. Stay away from fast-moving waters. Fast-moving water may seem ideal for tubing, kayaking, and other activities. However, Billings warned that the high waters, such as those of Clear Creek, can be dangerous. According to Billings, you should avoid camping, picnicking, and parking near fast-moving water. Avoid any areas that have already, already have high or rushing water, as these can flood quickly, Billings said. She added that conditions can change quickly. She urged people to keep pets and kids away from fast-moving water, as they can be swept away easily. Don't attempt to drive into six inches or more of water. Six inches of water does not seem like a lot, but according to Billings, that is more than enough to sweep an entire car away. Do not ever drive into standing water, as cars can be swept away in far less water than one would expect. Six inches to a foot, she warned. In addition, underneath water, roadways can be eroded or damaged, so driving could be impeded by unseen hazards. Billings urges drivers to abandon their cars if the car stalls in the water and move to higher ground. Put the entire family in life jackets. Billings urges families to bring along flotation devices and life jackets when they plan any activities around Jefferson County waterways this summer. Even small amounts of water, of swift water, can make you lose your footing, Billings said. This is especially true for adults and kids. Bring some kind of flotation or life jacket for the entire family to be safe. Be aware of debris floating along. A tree branch may seem harmless, but the rushing water adds force and the water may hide the size of the debris. For those reasons, Billings said to stay on alert for debris in high water areas. Billings referred to the National Weather Service website for further precautions. There, the NWS warned people to avoid floodwaters altogether. Standing water hides many dangers, including toxins and chemicals, the website said. There may be sharp objects under the water or the road could have collapsed. Assess waters carefully before entering. Get immunized. immunized. According to Billings, now is the time to make sure that your immunizations are up to date before you go out to play in local waterways. Quote, all immunizations, including tetanus, to help mitigate the risk posed by debris in a flooding situation, Billings said. Stay alert. Billings urges Jeffco residents to sign up for the lookout alert system to stay informed of flash flooding, especially after such a wet June. Quote, the lookout alert is the official emergency notification system for our county, as well as our neighbors Broomfield and Westminster, Billings said. Residents can sign up to receive critical notifications about emergencies near them. In addition to signing up for alerts, Billings advised Jeffco residents and visitors to watch the weather. When there is rain or storms in the forecast, avoid any areas that have already had, have high or rushing water, as these can flood quickly, she said. Summer fun is possible, despite all the additional water that Jefferson County is experiencing this year. Just take the proper precautions to keep the entire family safe. For more information, check out the Jeffco Public Health Flood Information page. We Ridge City Council, new playgrounds, parking lots, and more by Joe Davis. 
The Wee Ridge City Council met on June 26th for a regular session. Here are the actions that will impact the community soon. The Rec Center will get a new parking lot. The Wheat Ridge Recreational Center will receive a new parking lot. The council approved a resolution to award Sunland Asphalt and Construction of Littleton, Colorado, their contract. According to the resolution, the parking lot has been deteriorating because of soil issues since its opening in 2020. Sunland's bid will cost the city 485000 972 cents. According to the resolution, the Recreation Center will shut down between August 21st and 27th, 2023 for repairs. In case of emergencies, the city requires Sunland to finish work by September 29th, 2023. For more information on the contract, Sunland's bid, and more, see item 1A on WheatRidgeSpeaks.org. Anderson Park gets a new playground. The city received a portion of the sale of the Denver Broncos football club in 2022. Since then, the city has been vetting projects to fund with special attention on those projects, which will impact We Ridge kids. During the Monday meeting, the council approved funding a new playground at Anderson Park. The resolution appropriates $384,662.99 to game time. The company will install the new playground at Anderson Park. According to the game time proposal, some of the parts will take up to 18 weeks to ship. This means that the playground will not be ready for the summer season, of course. For more information about game time, the sale proceeds, or the new playground, check out item 1C on WheatRidgeSpeaks.org. Wheat Ridge and a Jeffco Housing Authority focus on the Ives. The Ives is considered a transit-oriented housing community on 44th and Wadsworth and Wheat Ridge. It's affordable housing overseen by Foothills Regional Housing, a Jefferson County Housing Authority. During the council meeting, the city council approved $1.9 million for the Ives. The funding is $1,970,630 in private activity bonds that the city can assign. The bonds are meant to stimulate jobs and help expand the community, according to the resolution. Assigning the bonds to Foothills Regional Housing for the Ives does satisfy the bond's purpose. Expect more information on how the funds will be allocated in future meetings. For more information, see item 2 on WheatRidgeSpeaks.org. July is officially Parks and Recreation Month. Mayor Bud Starker declared the entire month of July 2023 Parks and Recreation Month in Wheat Ridge. The proclamation recognizes the benefits that the Wheat Ridge Parks and Recreation Department brings to the city. The proclamation recognizes the benefits. Also recognizes that the U.S. House of Representatives recently made the same designation. For more information, see WaitRidgeSpeaks.org. Other activities from the council meeting. Parking requirements for affordable housing approved. Ridge reduced the parking requirements on deed-restricted affordable housing units. Doing so eliminates another barrier to expanding affordable housing in the city. 
daycare zoning changes approved. The zoning changes to expand the daycare options available to parents in the city. The approved ordinance now allows daycare centers in areas zoned neighborhood commercial and restricted commercial. Other changes were made to update the language on the ordinance as well. According to the ordinance, the change will significantly reduce barriers to child care in Wheat Ridge. Watch the entire council meeting on the Wheat Ridge YouTube page. Taste of Arvada Returns by Lillian Fugley. If you're looking for a new restaurant and want to try them all but don't know where to start, look no further than Taste of Arvada. Taste of Arvada is an annual event bringing together all the food, drink, and live music Arvada has to offer. Planned by the Arvada Chamber of Commerce, this year's event will feature more than 50 local restaurants, craft breweries, and non-food vendors. This year's Taste of Arvada will be from 6 to 8 p.m. July 13th at the Apex Center with VIP early access at 5 p.m. Tickets are available through the Arvada Chamber of Commerce websites. As Arvada's food scene constantly grows and evolves, we continue to add new and exciting restaurants to the Taste of Arvada mix, said Samantha Geerts, Vice President of Member Services and Events for the Arvada Chamber of Commerce. This is the only event where you can sample so much of what Arvada has to offer, added Geerts. Not only delicious food and beverages, but local music, artisans, and businesses. It's a must-attend event for anyone who lives in Arvada or loves coming to visit. Jeffco School Board approves more Pomona School Consolidation by Jane Reuter. The Jefferson County School Board unanimously approved the consolidation of Westminster's Moore Middle School and Arvada's Pomona High School. Moore Middle School will close and Pomona will become a 6-12 through 12 grade facility with the start of the 2024-25 school year. Principals of both northern Jefferson County schools located about a mile apart proposed the plan. They described it and the changes that will come with the merger as a vision for, quote, a thriving 6-12 through 12 secondary experience. District leadership praised those who led the effort during the June 22nd board meeting. The consolidation is among several school closures planned district-wide due to declining enrollment. But unlike those district-initiated proposals, the plan for the Pomona-Moore Mer merger came from leaders at the two schools. This is a great example of an idea that came directly from the community to solve a challenge they feel every day, said Lisa Rilau, Jeffco Public Schools Chief of Strategy and Communications. They wanted to get ahead of the district in terms of coming up with their own solution. Both institutions have seen enrollment steadily decline. Pomona's enrollment has dropped by about 15% over a five-year five school years, and Moore's by about 50%. In fact, Moore will be the Jeffco School District in the 2023-24 academic year. Incoming Moore Middle School Principal, Tamson Stokes, currently Assistant Principal at Golden High School, will oversee Moore's final year. She steps in for outgoing Principal Brenda Fletcher, Stokes expects the last year will be both exciting and bittersweet. Regardless of why, 
Having to close the school is challenging for all involved, she said. Given the decreasing enrollment over the past years, transitioning Pomona into a 6-12 through 12 school is a viable solution for the articulation area. But it's just still a hard thing to do. This year's 8th graders have the opportunity to go to Pomona for some of the electives. And the following year, there will be more opportunities for students to engage with older students in some sort of mentorship, she continued. As students continue from middle school grades to high school grades at Pomona, they may also be able to earn college credits and focus their studies in a particular career field. Our intention is to be able to offer a more enriched experience for middle school age students than they would have in a traditional middle school, Stokes said. Stokes also wants to pay tribute to more middle school in its final year. The school has been part of the community since its construction in 1978. This is a big transition for both the students, staff, and the community, she said. I want to celebrate the history of Moore and also make sure students have a good experience this year, regardless of the change that's coming. To make Pomona a 6-12 through 12 facility, plans call for creating a 6th and 7th grade wing, separate from the rest of the school population, and adding a drop-off area for those younger students who don't yet drive. The cafeteria will also be expanded to accommodate 6th through 9th grade students who, unlike high school students, likely will eat lunch on site. Cost estimates for the work are $1.8 million to $2.5 million. Rilau said the district likely could allocate about $1.8 million in unused funds originally designated for more improvements to the work at Pomona. Additionally, combining the two allows the schools to maximize resources, enhance opportunities for all students, and save an anticipated $1.1 million annually. District officials don't yet know the future of the building now that now houses more middle school, but said it will follow the property disposition process. Through that process, Jeffco school leaders will ask a diverse group of stakeholders to help determine the best use for each school that closes. Idaho Springs receives $2.4 million grants toward transportation to hub. By Deborah Swearingen. Idaho Springs has received a $2.4 million federal grant that will be used for planning and designing a downtown transportation and mobility hub meant to improve safety and accessibility and address traffic impacts in the city. It's the best news we ever could have hoped for. Idaho Springs Mayor Chuck Harmon said. Among other things, the project includes a roundabout at exit 240 of Interstate 70, a multi-level parking structure and pedestrian and bicycle infrastructure, including a connection to the Clear Creek Greenway. It will also include Idaho Springs Minor Streets Redevelopment Project, formally set forth in late 2021 when the city approved a downtown plan to guide improvements for the next 15 to 20 years. The plan is also heavily influenced by takeaways from the Minor Street Marketplace, a pedestrian mall enacted during the pandemic to support economic recovery in the city. While officials say the project is vital for Idaho Springs, it will impact much of the state given Idaho Springs location along Interstate 70, a major thoroughfare. This will be a really important amenity for the citizens of Colorado, Harmon said. 
This is actually a good way to lessen the emissions from I-70 since we're going to promote electric vehicle charging and public transportation. The grant funding is available through the Department of Transportation's Rebuilding American Infrastructure with Sustainability and Equity, RAISE, Discretionary Grant Program, which invests in road, rail, transits, and port projects across the country, according to a news release. The November 2021 Bipartisan Infrastructure Law increased funding for these grants. Earlier this year, Representative Joe Neguse read a let, wrote a letter to U.S. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg in support of the project and the city's grant pursuit. This project would also address historic impacts related to the construction of Interstate 70 in the city, Neguse wrote in the letter. The new roundabout will ease driver deceleration as they exit the high-speed interstate and enter the low-speed residential and commercial areas of downtown Idaho Springs, as well as improving access to the city's historic commercial district. Harmon said the grants would have been far less likely without support from the Colorado Department of Transportation and backing from officials such as Neguse, Governor Jared Polis, and Senators Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper. The support is overwhelming, Harmon said. My hat's off to staff in Idaho Springs. They really worked hard, he added. Idaho Springs City Administrator Andrew Marsh previously said the expected the project to cost around $40 million with the transportation upgrades and water and sewer work included in that estimate. The raise grants will help offset some of that cost, and the city has applied with a for a separate raise grant to assist with the construction costs, Harmon noted. It hopes to begin construction in about two years. Homelessness pushes out to the Colorado foothills and Denver suburbs. By Alan Guianet, CBS News, Colorado. In an RTD lot next to an open power outlet, they made their home. Carrie Vernon and her boyfriend were living by a power box near a light pole in the green grass. There was a pile of things, including suitcases and clothes, covered by a loose tarp. But it hadn't been raining. Missed the bus that last three days because only three buses that leave here in the morning and three that come here in the afternoon. So if you missed them, three buses, you're stuck here, she said. They had come to Evergreen to get away from the city. Denver, I will never stay down there, she said. It's like once the, once the sun goes down, it's crazy. Crime and drugs and alcoholism among the homeless population are a worry. We've had a lot of stuff stolen. We've started over like seven times because all of our belongings are gone. All over the metro area and foothills, homelessness has been spreading out. In Jefferson County, many of the homeless are originally from the night. From the area, there are no year-round overnight shelters in Jefferson County, so people either create their own shelters in places like parking lots or open spaces, or head into Denver where there is overnight shelter. But during the day, many return. They wind up coming back, and they're afraid, because it's too overcrowded. It's overcrowded, they say, and there's more crime in general, said Karen Cowling, director of Mission Arvada at the Rising Church. They prefer to be in the environment where they're used to in a place where they feel safer. 
Originally, Mission Arvada at the Rising Church was asked by the city to help provide services to a growing homeless population. Mass transportation helps people get back and forth from the city and is part of what made Arvada attractive to people experiencing homelessness. The transit is right here. The parks and open space areas and restaurants, and it's a desirable place for people to be homeless and otherwise, said Cowling. More and more people are seeking refuge here and in places like Lakewood and even Evergreen. For the last five years, I would say people are coming out into the suburbs, said Cowling. Vernon and her, friend boy, her boyfriend moved from Florida where crime was a problem as well. My older son moved here and he was like, Mom, come in and check it out, she explained. He lives in Broomfield where he's concerned about his mother's situation. He worries about me all the time, said Vernon. His wife's like, he worries about you from the moment he wakes up until he goes to sleep. Now with more family news, she says she's thinking about finding housing and work. My youngest son's going to have a baby. I just want a normal life back. In the past, she's worked doing housekeeping and as a 7-Eleven clerk, which she says was her favorite job. With the help of Evergreen Christian Outreach, she now has ID again. They got my ID for me now so I can get a job because I lost all my birth certificate and everything back. But now I'm slowly getting it all back. Vernon and her boyfriend, who does not come out of the shelter to talk, plan on getting to the bus in the morning to go down to Denver for services. In Arvada, homeless people collect in the area around the train station. Some are in agitation to businesses. Those with mental health problems can be intimidating and hard to shoo away. Cowling says the cost of housing and need for services leaves people on the streets who sh should not be as costly in other ways. Our economy and just the state of our situation in terms of not having enough mental health services and not having enough rehab and drug and alcohol treatment. Recently, the mission has been under pressure to move from Old Town due to a belief that offering services attracts a homeless population, which has increased in recent years. We are trying to advocate for our clients that are experiencing homelessness, but we are also trying to work with the city and the community and make sure that our area is clean and orderly. So we're kind of the balance. Clients served by the mission have to follow rules. Not all do in our band. Not providing assistance, she says, would mean only more people without services, not fewer people dealing with homelessness. Oh, no, 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 absolutely not, end quote. On the morning after talking about their situation at the Evergreen Park and Ride lot, Carrie Vernon and her boyfriend slept in, unwilling to come out of their enclosure to talk. The 740 bus came and went. They were still there. Colorado Community Media and CBS News Colorado share stories as part of a news gathering partnership. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Think change. 
talks, trainings, and tools to help in your work for or with people with intellectual and other developmental disabilities. Learn more at www.thinkchange.training. Made possible through support from the Arc of Aurora, Arc Thrift Stores, and Developmental Pathways. Think Change Talks. The School to Prison Pipeline refers to policies and practices that push children out of classrooms and into the juvenile criminal justice system. Students with disabilities make up 12% of the high school population, but 75% of the students restrained and 58% of the students isolated. In addition, more than 13% of students suspended have been identified as having disabilities. Behavior problems are identified as one of the most significant issues faced by educators, administrators, and parents. Disability and School-to-Prison Pipeline, a series of different perspectives. My name is Kalina Snoosom and I'm the Director of Education at the Denver Foundation. Um, some of the work that we do here um, is focused solely on um, closing the school or ending the school to prison pipeline, um, in particular um, Aurora Public Schools where we've done this work for the last six years. When I think back on it, it's really about kids just not knowing how to solve their own problems or to manage their own um, emotions or um, how they're responding to trauma. Um, and so how do you begin to sort of shift how you respond to a student's um, outburst in the classroom? So I think a lot of the work that we do is actually focused on the teacher's response to behavior as opposed to what needs to happen to the student. It's the day-to-day -day interactions that I think are most important. Um, and, and what I truly believe is that half the battle to the school to prison pipeline is mindsets and dispositions about kids, and in particular kids of color um, and kids who have special needs. And how are we engaging them? How are we seeing them? And are we putting them in a box? It's important to recognize when your bias is starting to impact your position or impact your own mindset and disposition about a kid or family or whoever you may be interacting with at any given time. If I can shift you as a, an educator, as a parent, as a guardian, as a police officer, if I can shift your mind about this kid or about kids in general, then I think we've won half the battle. We have the greatest potential to do this here in Denver, just given our legislative policies and things that have happened this year, but I do believe we need to have a deeper level of a conversation to have a more broad strategy around kids specifically with disabilities that are impacted by the school to prison pipeline and to address that in particular because I think our strategies around that haven't necessarily been responsive. So when we talk about responsive classrooms, when we talk about trauma, when we talk about racial equity work, when we talk about culturally responsive teaching, it's oftentimes excluding students with special needs. And I think we need to include those students, not in a way that says, okay, this is a special population of kids that need something different, but this is a special population of students that are very impacted by what's occurring. And we have a responsibility to those kids. How do we help communities of color recognize that your 504 plan and your IEP is actually your, your best weapon to get the support that you need for your kiddos? So I think the more that we sort of reduce the stigma around it, the better. 
I think that the most impacted kids are the ones that have disabilities. And our prison system is a money-making machine. And it's sad. it makes me sad that we are perfectly okay with quitting on a kid or a family. I am State Senator Rhonda Fields. I am the Assistant Majority Leader for the State Senate. I represent Senate District 29, which is in Arapahoe County in Aurora. The way I see the school-to-prison pipeline is an administrator or teacher's response to a behavior that in the past was considered normal. But now, because of our zero tolerance policies or code of conduct policies, we see people responding to behaviors differently. And it's almost like it's accelerated. So you have resource officers, you have um, teachers and deans in the school that are trying to create safe environments for students. And sometimes one behavior um, causes another reaction. And oftentimes that accelerates a kid being expelled and ultimately being summoned or given a ticket. We know there's going to be the know-it-all in the classroom. We know that there's going to be the one that talks too much. We know there's going to be the, the class clown. You, you know that there's going to be someone that's constantly tired or sleepy in the classroom. And instead of being frustrated with those kinds of behaviors, we should have specific strategies that administrators and teachers could use to explore the reasons behind that behavior. When kids are kept in school versus being suspended, what we have as educators is opportunity to shape behavior that we want to see emulated over and over again. So that might mean restorative justice. That might mean that young person sitting next to the person that they offended or whatever the behavior was, and maybe that child explaining the behavior, how hurtful that was, how harmful that was. The other person can hear their response. They can dialogue about it, and then lessons are learned. When you don't get the learning out of the behavior, then I'm afraid that the behavior continues. So I think that we need to intervene as administrators and, and uh, teachers as soon as we see the behavior. We give um, teachers the tools to help that young person reframe what they're seeing and share with them what would be most appropriate in scenarios like that and just mentor and guide and shape the kind of behavior that we know that would help them be successful moving forward. Our students who are black and brown, we know that when they're black and brown, the research says that their chances of being um, propelled into our criminal justice system is higher than our white students. But when you're black, brown, you have a disability then the rate is even higher. Let's say you're black and you are um, autistic. And let's say as a young male, you're, you're tall and you're big. And, uh, and the teacher may not know how to manage those behaviors in the classroom. The potential of that child being suspended and later being summoned for some behavior that was demonstrated in, in class is pretty high. My name is Carmen, and I'm a mother, a past foster parent, a grandmother, and I've had children who um, have been through the prison system, in the school system, and um, have struggled in all various systems.
school to prison pipeline is, and my experience has been, that children have failed the system and therefore they wind up through this, the juvenile justice system or the adult prisons. They don't seem to have available services for those kids. They might have IAPs, they might have 504s, or they may not have anything. There may be some intervention or no intervention. And those kids sort of sit dormant, I would call it. So they get missed. There's nothing wrong with being different. But we, and when I say we, I as a parent, whether you're a professional of any sorts, we as a team need to work together to be collaborative and we are more systemic and broken. There's kids that cry a lot, there's kids that cuss a lot, um, there's kids that just go in corners and they become loners, or there's kids that do very inappropriate things to other people and they're labeled. We have too many kids of minority in the prison system. We don't do enough to help them prior to them getting there. And if we had put enough services, appropriate services in place to say, you know what, we did this, we did this, we did this, and it was working, and then something changed, I would have maybe a different thought. But when you, if nothing changes, and you don't put, you still aren't putting anything in place, and you're not hearing what people are saying needs to be put in place, and you ignore what people are saying, that person doesn't belong in a prison. If you know that something is wrong with your child, and you, you know, you as a parent know, whether it, it you don't have to be biologically connected to this child, you could be an adoptive parent, you could be a grandparent, whatever the situation is, but if you know in your heart, or a teacher, um, a professional, um, that believes that there's something just not right for this child, and this child keeps crying out for the same thing over and over and over again, it is our responsibility to come together as a team and figure out what those needs are for that child and get the squeaky wheel going and stop acting like the person who keeps squeaking the wheel is combative, troublemaking, trying to cause problems. Hear them because if you don't, we all know what those consequences become. My name is Scott Modell. Uh, I uh, spent uh, about a decade and a half as a professor in California, Cal State University. Um, I founded and ran our university's Autism Center for Excellence and a number of other residential day programs for children, adolescents, and adults with disabilities. Uh, my research focus and area of study has been on uh, positive behavior support and uh, crime victimization and children with disabilities. In order to understand and how to respond to behavior, we need to know what behavior is in the first place. So behavior is anything a person does or says that we can observe. If we have a uh, education system that doesn't know how to respond to uh, challenging behavior of children, more likely the response is going to be is let's push them out. So through expulsion, through seclusion and other things. So the more likely that we're going to see, and the data supports this, that more kids with disabilities at a higher percentage are uh, expelled from school. You can take the door out, right? I didn't, I didn't do that, but that's good because that's one of those five things that we could use. I also could go and yell at him. And for Jackson, he does not like getting yelled at, and that would probably stop the behavior. 
we cannot punish our way out of fixing these behaviors, that we have to adopt this positive behavioral support concepts because the evidence suggests that that's going to best get us to these better outcomes and reduce the likelihood of these children winding up in prison. Positively supporting behaviors is about um, responding to challenging behavior in a way in, compatible with the science that we have, behavior analytic science, that is most likely going to get you to the outcomes that you want. And it moves away from using, as a first response, punishment-based procedures, because there's a number of challenges with using punishment-based procedures to shape or change behavior. Um, one of the things that we get is counter control, where you're going to typically get that immediate pushback because punishment-based procedures are overt. You also will get covert behavior. Teenagers refer that to this as strict parents equal sneaky kids. So the more we overlay punishing procedures on individuals, the more likely they're going to engage in covert behavior to try and hide it. So what we want to shift to is we want to shift to understanding that behavior is communication, behavior is purposeful, behavior is meaningful. And all behaviors, those that we like and those that we don't like, are learned. So physical diseases are tied to trauma, but these numbers are astounding. That has to impact not just educators and support staff and principals, but the greater community and parents. There's evidence that speaks to behavior intervention programs that involve parents and support parents uh, for this have greater efficacy. This is a real problem. This isn't a made up problem. This is real. We have a significant number of children with disabilities disproportionately disciplined, disproportionately expelled in schools. We all have to be accountable. It has to be accountability across the board, and I think that that's what's really important for ensuring that we're going to have the best outcomes for these children. To learn more about educational supports for a child, start with that child's school guidance counselor or homeroom teacher. Think Change Talks. Think Change. Talks, trainings, and tools to help in your work for or with people with intellectual and other developmental disabilities. Learn more at www.thinkchange.training. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.